0: the second week of the series we're doing based on the Apostles' Creed. Uh, Pastor Melissa did a great job kicking us off last week. And uh, we're just walking through each phrase of uh, the Apostles' Creed. And I, I know it, we appreciate you being here. I know whoever wrote the song, Easy Like Sunday Morning, probably didn't have little kids, you know. Because, you know, it's just not easy getting anywhere on a Sunday morning. So we appreciate you taking the time uh, to be here. And uh, it's going to be an exciting journey. We're following along with that book we suggested earlier. Um, so please definitely pick one of those up before we're, we're done here today. I, I do want to uh, kick it off with a little story. An Italian artist named Salvatore Grau, uh sold a work of art, which isn't really that uh, stupendous of a thing. I mean, he sold it for $18,000, which is pretty good, uh, you know, bank day for an, an artist. But here's the catch, though, about his, art, his sale of his art. Um, I saw this in the news last week. Uh, it's literally nothing. The art is nothing. It's a five foot by five foot square and the work of art is called I Am. And uh, so the good news is it's always gonna go with your furniture, you can't lose it, Uh, you can't break it, no one's gonna steal it. And so whoever bought this, they got a certificate that verified they're the owner of this piece of artwork and you have to have a five foot by five foot square in your house in order to exhibit this uh, piece of artwork. So here's a quote from Salvatore. He looks very, like, very artist-y, doesn't he? He looks very serious. He said this, when I decide to exhibit an immaterial sculpture in a given space, nothing. That space will concentrate a certain amount of density of thought in that space, creating, creating a sculpture in your mind. Because after all, he says, it's very, very interesting he said this, after all, don't we shape a God we have never seen? Well, he is right about one thing. This does activate my imagination. I can't stop imagining who has enough money to waste on this for 18 grand. I can't stop imagining who would buy it. Perhaps it was an emperor with no clothes. I can't stop imagining why you would waste your money on this. But hats off to you, sir. You are a baller and a professional con man. So good for you, Salvatore. But it does beg the question, what makes something something? What makes anything anything? What constitutes something? What makes a tree a tree? It makes a house a house, a church a church, a person a person. Do we get to make that decision? As we're here today, what makes Jesus Jesus? Is it based on public opinion? Is it based on what's in the news? Do we determine Jesus for what we want it to be to create a Jesus that fits our lives and our likings, do we get that right to do so? According to the Apostles' Creed, the answer is no, we do not. We see three titles for Jesus in the Apostles' Creed, Christ, Son, and Lord. You see those three titles that are emphatically stated for a reason why they're there. So before I get to those three titles, we're just going to look at the words, I believe. Before we even tackle those three titles, I believe. Now, in our version of the Apostles' Creed, it we have an and before Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. But it connects to I believe in God the Father. So other versions say I believe every other line. But still, the implication is there. We're saying I believe in this. I believe in this. Now here's two things happen when you uh, make a, a creedal statement. When you affirm that statement, you say I believe. Two things are happening. The first one is you're saying I affirm that statement. But you're simultaneously rejecting everything else. You're simultaneously affirming and denying at the same time because all of the great heresies of church history, the false teachings, things weren't correct, Um, and many, I respectfully say though, in many of the world religions also all did the same thing. They want to subjugate or diminish the person and divinity of Jesus Christ. They want to make him be something that he's not that he never claimed to be. Here's what I mean. All the world religions, they do something with Jesus. They can't deny his influence, but he's always lesser than who he claimed to be. For example, in Islam, he's called Esa. He's not the son of God. It's repugnant that God would have a son, let alone allow him to be crucified on a cross. So they, would, they deny that. They'd say he's a prophet, but not the prophet. He's like Abraham, but he's not the prophet, of course, because Muhammad Non-believing Jews throughout history just really choose to ignore Jesus, or if they do, they call him an aberration of Judaism. Uh, the second century historian Josephus, uh, a not a Jewish historian, uh, records that the Jews back then regarded Jesus as a sorcerer. So that's interesting because, for one, they're acknowledging for, that he existed outside of biblical accounts, that Jesus existed, and that he did magical things. So all they could, the best they could do is say Jesus was a sorcerer. Modern day Hindus see Jesus as the incarnation of the god Vishnu. He has come to restore order and life on the earth, but he's not the son of God. The ancient heresy of Arianism, if you've never heard of Arianism, it was basically Arianism taught that the son of God was created by the father, that the father made the son. And so therefore the son is not co-eternal with the father. He's not co-substantial. So that's why when you read something like the Nicene Creed, and it says the son was begotten, not made, they put that in there to combat Arianism. Now, interestingly enough, Arianism is very much similar to modern-day Jehovah's Witness teaching, which which teaches that Jesus was created and that he does not share in God's eternality. So there's a little bit of tidbit there. Mormons, they deny the uniqueness of God by teaching that we can become gods ourselves, that after death we can inherit planets. Sorry, ladies, just the guys. Uh, Sorry. (laughs) In that God the Father used to be a mortal who walked the earth and grew into his deified status. Just giving you that little tidbit. Gnosticism taught that God would never condescend himself to hold a sinful human frame. The flesh is bad in Gnosticism. That's not biblical Christianity. Christianity teaches the resurrection of the body. But Gnosticism says, no, Jesus, he would, the Son of God would never take on a human frame. He, it came upon him, but he wasn't the Son of God. And to be fair, modern-day Protestant conservatives want to wrap Jesus in an American flag and call that Christianity, or modern-day Protestant liberals want to say Jesus wore Birkenstocks and uh, smelled like you know, incense and didn't offend anybody, and he's like Buddha and Muhammad, and he's on the same playing field. The, the Bible does not affirm any of those things about Jesus. None of it. We can't just see, we have to see Jesus as he claims to be, as he stated in the creed, not just as we wish him to be. This is maybe the most important question you could ever ask yourself. I've always told, when I was a youth minister, I told youth, two most important questions of your life. What will you do with the person of Jesus, and who are you going to marry? Two most important questions you'll ever answer. Two most. And you, the answer of who Jesus is to you is the most important question you will ever determine and answer in your heart and mind. Is he Christ, Son, and Lord? Because when you state a creed, you're saying, I affirm that and I reject that. That is the exclusive philosophical nature of truth. It does, not in a hateful way, but it just excludes. Two plus two is four. Sorry, five. No, I hurt your feelings. But it's naturally, it just happens. When you affirm a truth, it excludes everything else. So there is an objective overarching story to the universe under which, an umbrella under which we can find our truth, find God's truth, find our purpose, find our life, find out who we are. But see, we live in a postmodern culture that is the rejection of metanarrative. It's the rejection of of holding to any sort of story. We want my narrative. I want my authority. I want my truth. And so that's why people are very suspicious of organized religion. But I always told people, organized religion is way better than disorganized religion. Believe me, it's way better. But there is a meta-narrative under which we can determine our own truth. But the oxymoronic qualities of our current status of our culture is, I do my thing, you do your thing, but then many people turn around and demand that you better do my thing. (laughs) And it doesn't work that way. Ultimately, you have to fall under some sort of authority. Whoa, someone take a picture? So when you stand to affirm a creed, this creed especially, you're being very counter-cultural in a very church history sort of way. There are Christians right now that could be killed for standing in public in saying this creed out loud? They are. We never hear about it but it's true. You're saying I affirm this and I reject that. This is our core identity as who we are as the church, as Christians. And that there is a larger story, a larger umbrella and that's a good thing. God's not there to spoil your fun. He's actually there to help you find freedom under those. It's like guardrails on a road. He's helping you find freedom within the, there's the safety in his covenant with you. Outside of that covenant is death anyway. Let's stand and read this whole creed together. We're going to do this every week. We're just going to recite the Apostles' Creed together. If you're at home watching with us, please do it as well. If your neighbors think you're crazy, well, it's all right. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, Amen. You may be seated. So we're going to look at the second line. There's 12 lines of the Apostles' Creed, and we're going to look at the second one today. Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. So this statement is, gets to the heart of who Jesus is. Apart from what he's done from us, it's simply a statement about who he is, his nature. And of the 12 affirmations of the, of the Apostles' Creed, six of them are about Jesus. So in order to be a Christian, you have to have a clear understanding of who Jesus is. It's rock-solid stuff. Christ, Son, and Lord. Now, the first one is Christ. So it's not Jesus' last name, as maybe you probably, many of you know. Um, and his middle name, his middle initial is not H. I don't know where that came from. <laughs> but Christos is, is, is a title, which means Messiah or anointed one. It's sort of like an honorary doctorate that you give people. It's way better than that, of course. But it's like Jesus didn't have a last name. So Joseph, his earthly father, Joseph would have been known as Joseph, son of Jacob. Uh, you, so you could call him Joseph Jacobson. That, that would fit in English, I suppose. Jesus would have been called Yeshua, son of Joseph. Or don't call him Yeshua, Joseph's son, that'd be weird. But as Jesus grew in ministry and status and power and authority and people saw what he was doing and saying, they're like, well, who is this guy? Like, they didn't know what, all the best they could do is go, you're the Christ. And you see this come up in scripture all the time. So when we preach from a creed, we're not preaching the creed, we're preaching the Bible because that's what built and shaped the creed. So you see a lot of people in the Bible affirm that Jesus is the Christ. Now as he's doing ministry, a lot of people are sort of like, who is this guy? Is he a reincarnated prophet? Is he like Elijah come back from the dead? And so we see a story in Matthew 16 where Peter affirms these two of these titles Christ and son in this account so Jesus is asking them basically what's the word on the street what are people saying about me of course he knows what people are saying he wants to know what do you think who do you think I am so we look at this in Matthew 16:13. so when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi he asked his disciples who do people say the son of man is And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. He doesn't rebuke Peter. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. So Peter's not a shy guy. And he answers truthfully and says, you're the Christ, you're the son of God. Now the word Christos in Greek would usually only be ascribed to like kings, the anointed kings, the anointed ones, the Christos. But here, Peter is affirming Jesus' divinity in the shadow of this city, Caesarea Philippi, that is named after Caesar, the Roman Empire. It would take you two years to travel the amount of land they occupied back then through the means of transportation. The sun never went down on the Roman Empire. And here in the shadow of that city, a pagan city, here is Peter saying, "You are the, Caesar's not the Christ. You're the Christ. You're the son of God. I mean, in Caesarea Philippi, there were like pagan temples. There's one called the Temple of Pan. That's where we get our word pantheism. They essentially believe that God is everything and everything is God. If you're not sure what pantheism is, remember, who's ever seen the movie Avatar? You can admit it in church. We all saw it. It's the most popular movie ever. They probably shipped it to you in the mail at this point. But Yeah, we all saw Avatar, and I affirm the environmental part of that. It's a great, great movie. But, you know, that's pantheism, that God is everything, everything's in God. You can take your ponytail and stick it on a lizard and, and talk to it or whatever, you know, and have that sort of thing. You know, that's pantheism. That's what they worship. They worship creation. There's also the Temple of Baal was there, which is essentially a satanic ritual. That that is what was going on in Caesarea Philippi, and in the shadow of that city, he is saying, you are the Christ. And just like Peter, we can't really say that Jesus is the the Lord without the Holy Spirit's help. Just like Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Peter, Peter, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. But God helped you know the truth about who I am. So he's Christ and he's son. Obviously we know that he's not the son in the sense that, that God the father got married and had a son. He didn't mate with Mary or something. You get, you, we'll get more into that with he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. But God is Jesus is God's son in the sense that he is God made manifest in the flesh. He has always been with God in, in God in the Trini- Trinitarian aspect of who God is. He has always been. So the son, is not like a title of lineage like we're used to affirming it. It's more of the status in the Godhead. He is of God just as the Father and the Spirit are. The apostle John wrote about this in his gospel. He started his gospel in this way of the eternal aspect of who Jesus is. He is God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In this next line, you see it affirmed all throughout the New Testament. All things came into being through him. You see it in Ephesians, we see it in Colossians, you see it in Hebrews. All things came into being through the Son, through the word. And not one thing came into being without him. And what came into being in him was life. Son of God. He, he's preexistent before creation. He always has been, always will be, just like God is. On the Mount of Tr- the Transfiguration, in the New Testament, God the Father proclaims to those listening, this is my son. Listen to him. During his trial before the Jewish leaders, the high priest demands of Jesus, I charge you, tell us if you are the Christ. Tell us if you are the son of God. And Jesus affirms that and says, Yes, it is as you say. But I say to all of you, in the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one coming in the clouds of heaven. That made him really angry. Not only did he affirm he is Christ and then he's his son, he was like, I'm coming back to judge all of you. I mean, the Jewish leaders responded by accusing Jesus of blasphemy. And according to the law, They wanted to kill him because he claimed to be the son of God. Why should they kill him for that? Why would you want to kill someone claiming to be that? They knew what that meant. That blasphemy to them meant that he was claiming divinity, that he was claiming to be God. To be the son of God is to be of God, and so they demanded his death. So we have Christ, we have son, and we have Lord. We hear a lot, the word Lord. Lordy, lordy, lordy. Oh, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? You hear the word Lord all over the place. Just, just a closer walk with thee, O oh Lord. You know, so we hear the title Lord a lot. Christ is Lord. That's the oldest maybe creed in the Bible. We've, we found it ascribed, inscribed in walls and first century houses. Christ is Lord. Jesus is Lord. It's been there from the very beginning. Now, if you're not a religious person and you could hear that and go, well, are, the, are, you, are you just giving him the title of Lord because the Bible says so? Well, That's convenient. But no, you're giving him the title Lord because his, his, his actions and authority have demonstrated that, that he is in fact Lord. So for example, Jesus walked with a distinct authority, right? When he argued with people, he always won and uh, yeah, he always won. <laughs> he wins every argument. Literally demons would come up and yell at him and say, what do you want with us? They're petrified of him. They have no power over him and they knew it. And so repeatedly you see him casting out demons, stopping storms with his mouth, saying to Lazarus, you're not dead anymore. I mean, you go on and on. He is, he's Lord over all creation. He's authority. He's never in a hurry. Then in 1 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul says something really interesting that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now what does he mean by that? Because you can physically create the words out of your mouth. You can shape the air to say Jesus is Lord. Anyone can do that. So what does he mean by that? You can literally say the word, but to actually mean it in the heart is a more profound thing. It's as pro- Let me put it this way. It's as profound as Christmas baby Jesus. Many people go to church on Christmas, right? Churches are usually more filled than most times of the year. And it's very um, heartwarming. You have little goo goo baby Jesus and and animals and away in the manger and and it, you know it is it's sentimental and it's it's great and it's powerful. But to some people, that is the only Jesus they know. And to affirm Jesus as Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit is it's it's moving from heartwarming to life changing. See, nowhere in the Bible, in church history, do we see. Just Christians simply being heartwarmers. But they understood and knew that Jesus is Lord over the lives. It's one thing just to say it, it's another thing to live it. And this is a foreign concept of the of the in the Bible to say that I love little eight ounce, six eight pound, six ounce baby Jesus, but he's not my Lord. Like that that's not there. And Lord means that He sits on the throne of your life. You don't sit on the throne anymore. He does, and that's a good thing. It's the best thing, that he is in control over you, giving you a new nature, affecting your thoughts and, and shaping and molding you and growing you in holiness. Because Jesus has absolute power, absolute authority. Even Ephesians 3.11 says that God appointed him long before he made the worlds, that through the Son all things have been made. The author C.S. Lewis had a very, many of you have probably heard this, a very famous statement about Jesus, that he is either liar, lunatic, or Lord. And you have to pick one of the three, because the things he said and did, uh, it, there's something either a liar would say, or you're completely nuts, or you meant it. So like things like John 11:25, I am the resurrection and the life. Is he lying there, or is he a lunatic? Mark two seven, Jesus forgives people's sins and he doesn't turn them away. That's something God does. Is he lying, or is he a lunatic? John seventeen twenty four, he Jesus declares that I was with the Father before the foundation of the world. Is he lying, or is he a lunatic? Many parts of the New Testament, Jesus receives worship, and he doesn't turn it away. That's a sign of divinity that you receive worship. Is he lying? Or is he a lunatic? The choice is, is indeed ours. Colossians 1.16, as I said, all things were created by him and through him. Hebrews 1 says that long ago, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he created the worlds. Some people in the church today would call that high Christology. I call that Christology. That, that is simply who Jesus is and who he claims to be. So, okay. If Jesus is Christ's son, Lord, and in many people in the room, he is. But to some of you, you may be thinking, how do I access that? What do I do with that? How do I come to understand that more? To know Jesus in that way. In the Bible, we see a word called metanoia that comes up. And it's a word in English we don't really like very much, the word repent. But that's not the best translation. It doesn't mean flagellate yourself and feel bad about yourself. Metanoia could mean a transformative, transformative change of heart, especially a spiritual conversion. We have the word metamorphosis, which means transformation of, of matter, transformation of, 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 of self, of being. Metanoia is the transformation of your thoughts to change how you think. To let God impact how you think differently. To think differently about who Jesus is. Not what the culture says who Jesus is, but what does the Bible say Jesus is. That he's Christ's son and Lord. Change the way you think about that. Let God transform your thoughts. And metanoia is essentially the right tool to unlock this already preexistent reality. Human beings are born into the world with a bit of spiritual amnesia. We don't quite understand like you come into a church, like, I don't know what to do with my hands. Like, do I sing? Like, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to pray. I don't know how to read the Bible. Like, we're all like that. We have to learn. We have to change the way we thought about all those things. Maybe when we were younger, that happened, and we were continuing that process throughout our lives. It's a transformative process, but metanoia is the tool that unlike, unlocks the preexistent reality of Christ. For example, radiation always existed Forever until we got the Geiger counter and then we had the right tool to acknowledge that radiation exists. The ability to fly existed long before we discovered the law of aerodynamics that allows metal to go into the air. But the right tool unlocked its already preexistent reality. Microorganisms existed long before the advent of the tele- uh, telescope, microscope. But the right tool unlocked their preexistent reality. Metanoia unlocks the pre existent reality of who Christ is, to change the way we think, to help you see that God wants to help you see that. As Jesus told Peter, the Father helped you see this. As Paul says, the Holy Spirit will help you say that He is Lord. Because it, if Jesus is Lord, all things are possible because of His Lordship, not in spite of His Lordship. And as we get ready to sing our last few songs, we invite you to come forward for prayer. If you need that, I'd love to say a prayer with you either during the song or after the service is over and to let, let you know that we're here to help in this journey of faith in your life, to, to be leading, uh, helping and shepherding that in your life, to help unlock more of who, that he is Christ, son and Lord and who we are and who you are and to see that it's the height of human arrogance to assume that we know everything. And that once you see this, you can never unsee it. Once you know that He is Lord, amen, you can't unsee it. You can't let it go. Like the people that saw Jesus do all those amazing things, they didn't just brush it off, many of them. They, goes, they had to give Him a title. So, you are so amazing. We're going to have to call you the Messiah, the anointed one, the anointed king. And it's the same today with people. When we encounter Jesus, who He is in our lives, You can't look away because there's no one like him. There never has been. It's almost embedded in people and our world and our culture. We can't get away. He's the most influential person who ever existed. Time Magazine, number one, every time. Why? Because maybe on an intrinsic level, we know deep down that he is the way and the truth and the life. He is the son of God. And I think the love of God is calling you to say, don't play games with it anymore, but to see that God wants to set you free from sin and death and to live forever with him and the host of heaven. Let's pray together. Jesus, indeed, you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Before all things were made, you were and after all of this madness is over down here you will come again and you will set all things right and your, your word says in revelation that you will come and wipe away every tear from him every eye in your presence there's no more disease there's no more suffering there's no more division no more accusation all of it ends in your presence O oh God there is perfect peace for you are the Prince of Peace. On this day, Lord, we proclaim with our mouths and with our lives and our hearts that you are the Christ, you are the Son of God, you are the Lord. And the best we can do, God, is bring to you our broken selves. And thank you, God, that to you that's more than enough to give you our sin and our shame and our darkness You call us to come willingly into your light and you'll receive us as a son and a daughter fought for and bled for and died for. You pursue us, God, again and again. Your grace doesn't let us go. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name we pray.